Welcome to NTD Evening News, our top story tonight. Former President Trump yet again booted from the ballot. This time in Maine, this as the deep blue state of California makes a surprising shift in the opposite direction. Melina Weisskopf has the updates. A narrow escape in Gaza's rubble. A baby girl miraculously survives. Meanwhile, the IDF saying they've uncovered a tunnel network used by senior Hamas officials. It had underground restrooms and even an elevator. Jason Perry reports. Russia launches one of its biggest airstrikes against Ukrainian cities. See where they targeted and how bad the damage is. More Chinese people than ever before are coming now into the United States through the southern border. What's their affiliation back in China? Arian Pastor brings us an update on the border crisis. In Ohio, a bill that would keep men out of women's sports is vetoed by the Republican governor. Dave Martin joins us for more on the two sides' arguments. This is NTD Evening News. Live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City, here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. I'm Iris Tao and for Tiffany Meyer. A second state's removing former President Trump's name from the primary ballot, Maine. But deep blue California makes the opposite call. The discontinuity is ramping up the pressure on the Supreme Court to act. NTD's Melina Weisskopf has the story. Maine Secretary of State is following in the footsteps of Colorado, interpreting the 14th Amendment in a way they say makes Trump ineligible to run for office, once again drawing backlash from Trump's own challengers. It's unconstitutional, it's anti-American, it's wrong. This should be decided by the voters of the United States. It should not be decided by courts. Secretary of State Shanna Bellows acknowledges that no one in her position has ever used their authority in this way, but she says that no presidential candidate has ever engaged in insurrection before, even as Trump has not been found guilty or even been indicted on a charge of insurrection. The charges against Trump in the January 6th related case are a mix of obstruction and conspiracy charges. This isn't about Donald Trump. This is about our constitutional rights and the ability of the American people to elect into leadership, the people that they choose. Trump's attorneys argue that Bellows has a personal bias because she's referred to January 6th as an insurrection and they've asked her to recuse herself. Trump's team will challenge her decision in court. Should the U.S. Supreme Court rule that Mr. Trump be on the ballot, I will in fact place him on the ballot. It's part of why I suspended the effect of my decision until the courts can act. Uh, so no ballots are being printed. Bellows' decision puts more pressure on the Supreme Court to act, especially as there's disagreements among the states over how to handle the issue, other states saying not so fast, California being the latest to reject efforts to disqualify Trump. Late last night, the state's election chief, a Democrat, put out a list of certified candidates with Trump's name on it. Likewise, Michigan's Supreme Court this week rejected an effort to try to disqualify Trump. There have been several other states who have rejected such efforts, but there are also pending cases in a handful of other states. Now one Republican Senator, Tom Tillis of North Carolina, plans to take this fight to the halls of Congress. He plans to introduce a bill to restrict federal funds from going to states that try to block candidates from the ballot. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. 
Israeli troops have uncovered an extensive underground tunnel network used by senior Hamas officials. An IDF officer on the front line in Gaza explains that it was equipped with underground restrooms and even an elevator. NDD's Jason Perry has the latest on the war and a warning. This report contains footage that some viewers may find disturbing. Hamas terrorists released another video on Friday as they try to maintain control of the Gaza Strip. Terrorists sneak through a destroyed building before spotting an apparent Israeli tank and firing an explosive at it. Although Hamas remains in full-scale war with Israel in the Gaza Strip, a Hamas leader at an unknown location on Friday said they're willing to consider any proposal to end the war. Egypt on Thursday said they had put forth a ceasefire deal and they're still waiting for a response. Israel, on the other hand, only wants a temporary ceasefire to release hostages and afterwards plans to continue their mission to defeat Hamas. And the IDF is continually gaining ground on the terrorist group, as seen by this Israeli commanding officer in the northern Gaza Strip. We have found a very significant tunnel network of Hamas, a network used by the senior officials. This tunnel network is different. It has an elevator that goes down a very long tunnel shaft, going through a place with rooms, bathrooms, air conditioners, and the ability to conduct operations. IDF soldiers lined the tunnels with explosives, and after they got out, Israel's defense minister on Friday said the IDF is now focused on Gaza's second largest city, Khan Yunus, in the southern Gaza Strip. But discerning the terrorists from civilians can be difficult, as seen in this children's bedroom in Khan Yunus, a pink child's backpack filled with grenades and ammunition. Also on Friday, the Israeli government spokesperson said the IDF mistakenly fired the wrong munition in a previous airstrike, which resulted in the death of many innocent civilians. He said Israel regrets any loss of life because they're trying to do everything they can to minimize civilian casualties, while Hamas has a strategy of maximizing casualties. Meanwhile, on Thursday, after an Israeli strike in Rafah in southern Gaza, rescuers were able to pull this baby out from under the rubble, and this man ran with her to the hospital. She reportedly survived without any severe injuries. However, the baby's mother and sister were killed in the blast, and her father and brother survived. Other Palestinians displaced from the war now living in tents in Deir al-Bala in central Gaza shared their experiences. For a month we are here. We are suffering. No clean bathrooms, no food. It was really hard to find wheat. We suffer from everything, also water. We suffer from all sides. I buried my children, a child 16 years old, another one aged 18, something I really can't believe. Also, my nephew, he was two years old. I buried him. I buried my wife. I never thought in my life that I will bury my children. I thought they will bury me. Meanwhile, across Israel's northern border, Lebanese officials recently met with officials from France and the UK about the escalating war between Israel and Hezbollah. And an IDF spokesperson said on Thursday that if the diplomatic community cannot take care of the situation with Hezbollah, Israel will use whatever weapons and means they have at their disposal to take them out. Jason Perry, NTD News.
Turning our attention now to the Russia-Ukraine war, dozens were killed today when over 100 Russian missiles rained down on Ukraine. Ukraine says this was Russia's biggest airstrike so far in the war. Ukrainian officials said Russia launched 122 missiles and 36 drones against cities across Ukraine on Friday. At least 30 people were killed and over 160 were injured. Ukraine considers this the biggest aerial barrage of the war. The attacks hit Ukraine's capital, Kyiv. I was woken up at half past 7 a.m. by a horrible sound. It was so frightening. The missile was flying and everything was buzzing, whirring. I didn't know what to do. Other cities hit include Odessa along the Black Sea coast, Dnipro, Zaporizhia and Kharkiv in the interior, and Lviv, a major city in the western part of Ukraine. The attacks caused widespread damage to local infrastructure. One person died, eight sought medical help, one injured is in quite a severe condition. There is a lot of damage. Residential buildings are here. Ten residential buildings, practically all of them are damaged. Russia's defense ministry on Friday said that in the past seven days, the military launched 50 group strikes and one massive strike with missiles and drones against Ukraine. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Meanwhile, Poland says a suspected Russian missile enters airspace today from the direction of Ukraine before vanishing off radars. And Poland is a NATO member state. It didn't take any actions against the missile, but is now investigating the incident. And now Chinese citizens at the U.S. southern border. In November, the U.S. Customs and Border Protection saw more encounters with Chinese migrants than ever before. This comes as a new report says that the FBI can't keep up with DNA testing for illegal immigrants. NDD's Arian Pastor has a border update. New numbers show that Agents for Customs and Border Protection, or CBP, encountered almost 5,000 Chinese nationals at the southern border in November. In November of last year, the number was 10 times lower, at around 500 encounters. Back in June, Homeland Security Committee Chairman Mark Green told the Daily Wire that those immigrants have ties to the Chinese People's Liberation Army, or PLA. Verification that the individuals being released into the United States come from or have ties to the PLA it came from a sector chief. And in terms of overall encounters, November is in second place. The month saw about a quarter million people. Only September of this year saw more encounters at the southern border. Also, the FBI reportedly has a huge backlog of testing immigrants' DNA. That's according to the Daily Caller, which released internal communication from Homeland Security on Friday, appearing to show that the FBI doesn't have enough money to run the program, which is a statutory requirement. They are looking at a 15-month backlog. DNA testing is used partly to see if immigrants are wanted for any crimes. And lastly, the Department of Justice might sue Texas. That's over a new state law which would give local judges the authority to deport illegal immigrants. Governor Greg Abbott responded to the possible lawsuit, writing, The Biden administration not only refuses to enforce current U.S. immigration laws, they now want to stop Texas from enforcing laws against illegal immigration. I've never seen such hostility to the rule of law in America. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. Coming up, Ming's decision to remove Trump from the ballot. Our guest says it's the first time a Secretary of State has done something like this. Hear more about his legal analysis of this unfolding case. 
And in Ohio, a bill aimed at protecting fairness in women's sports is vetoed by a Republican governor. Dave Martin joins us for more when we return. What's the Maine Secretary of State arguing what will happen from here? Joining us now to unpack Maine's decision to remove Trump from the ballot, we have Mark Miller, Senior Attorney at Pacific Legal. Mark Miller, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to join you, Iris. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. And first, there are a lot of controversies surrounding the Maine decision, among them that the person who made this decision is a Democratic state election official, not even a court like in the Colorado case. So explain for us how the Maine state secretary was able to make that decision and whether it holds legal weight under the Constitution. Yeah, so the Maine secretary of state is a Democratic uh, secretary of state. And she uh, took this position because statute does allow her and, and requires her to decide who should be on the ballot, usually to see whether they're qualified. Uh, but this is the first time where a secretary of state in this position is deciding to rule that the candidate is not qualified, President Trump, because he was an insurrectionist. So that's new, and that definitely will get challenged in court, as President Trump's lawyers have said. And now going back to the fundamental legal debate here about the 14th Amendment, the argument that Trump participated in an insurrection, as the main Secretary of State alleges, despite the lack of a criminal conviction, does that argument hold up under judicial scrutiny? Well, that's the $64,000 question, Iris, and certainly there has been no conviction. There's nothing in the Constitution or the 14th Amendment that says there has to be a conviction. But on the other hand, it does seem uh, peculiar that uh, a, a Colorado Supreme Court, four justices out of seven, or that a secretary of state, who's not even, as you said, a lawyer, let alone a judge, is deciding that they think the Constitution applies, the 14th Amendment applies, and that they can unilaterally bounce President Trump from the ballot. And of course, Jay Sekulow, on behalf of the Colorado Republican Party, has appealed this to the US Supreme Court, that Colorado decision. Uh, the main decision will be probably hot on the heels of that case. And I think ultimately it will be the U.S. Supreme Court that has to resolve this. And as you mentioned, Trump's team is already vowing to appeal and both the Maine and the Colorado decisions are currently on hold until legal challenges make their way through the courts. So dive into the specific legal timeline, timeline here. What's coming next and how fast can we expect things to unfold? Well, it is moving very quickly. Uh, as I said, Jay Sekulow and his group, the American Center for Law and Justice, has already taken a challenge to the Colorado case, and the lawyers for that are attacking the uh, validity of Trump's candidacy in Colorado already responded. They asked the Supreme Court to expedite the case, or actually agreed with Sekulow, and said, yes, this case should be expedited. I just checked the docket. The Supreme Court of the United States has not said it would expedite the case, and in, in fact, last week, when Jack Smith, in one of the criminal cases against President Trump, asked for the Supreme Court to expedite it, the Supreme Court said no. Uh, this case, though, will be probably be different. Uh, it certainly is different. It's not a criminal case. But at the same time, whether President Trump is on the ballot is an immediate issue. And you can see the U.S. Supreme Court deciding to take this very quickly. And in fact, there are dates in their January calendar available for oral argument should they move that quickly. 
And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is already saying that the main decision, quote, opens up Pandora's box. How do you expect similar cases to play out in other states where cases are pending? And are we going to see a Republican Secretary of State also trying to disqualify President Biden from the ballot, you think? Well, you know, it's interesting. Whoever goes first tends to set the precedent. And so when Colorado's Supreme Court decided four to three that they would say Trump can't be on the ballot, that set in motion this main decision. Of course, the California Secretary of State uh, said, or maybe it was the Lieutenant Governor said, that he that he might be bounced there. Of course, they decided against it. California is going to keep him on the ballot for now for the primaries. But once Colorado went jumped first, you can expect other states to follow. Some Republican states have said they may follow. Others have said they would not. Christy Nome, for example, in South Dakota, the governor, she said no. Her responsibility is to follow the law. And the fact that the Colorado Supreme Court did something wrong doesn't mean that she should also do something wrong. And that's to her credit. So I think that you may see other states uh, find that uh, President Trump can be on the ballot, but that's only going to be until the U.S. Supreme Court intervenes. The U.S. Supreme Court will have the final word on this. And lastly, before I let you go here, I think the one question that a lot of voters are you know, thinking about is whether any of this is going to have any ultimate fundamental impact on the general election come November. Well, certainly putting my political prognostication hat on, if the Supreme Court were to rule and, and surprise many and say that Trump can be removed from the ballot or, or he has to be as an insurrectionist, obviously that would impact the outcome. Um, if they go the other way, what I think more people predict, um, I think that what these decisions are doing is making President Trump more popular with those who, who don't really look at him as a candidate so much as they look at him as a symbol, that he's being attacked and they think unfairly. And so there's many voters who are voting him for that reason, not for his policies. It's a very strange sort of turn of events that we've seen over the last year, and it only promises to get stranger in 2024. Well, a lot to watch for in the coming weeks and months. Mark Miller, thanks so much for the great insight. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Iris. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. So, Dave, a lot to unpack right here. Let's start with some sports and politics. Ohio governor, who's a Republican, vetoed a bill that would have prevented doctors from prescribing and performing transgender procedures for minors. The bill would have also prevented transgenders from competing in women's sports. Now he's a Republican. Why would he do this? And what's the argument here between the two sides? You know, this seems to be a fairness versus compassion kind of debate that's gotten very contentious, of course. You know, I always hear from one side that these rules exclude transgender athletes from playing sports. But I found that to be somewhat misleading. You know, they usually just force sports teams to be separated by their gender at birth or whatever XX versus XY chromosomes, like they've always been. But everyone, of course, is either one or the other, so I really don't see how anyone is excluded. Now, clearly, there are physical differences between men and women. Men have larger lung capacity, stronger bone density, and, of course, higher testosterone levels, which builds muscle. Now, if you think about it, why are steroids banned in every major sport? It's because it increases testosterone, which, of course, is a huge competitive advantage. I think that's why you never hear a problem with this the other way. There are actually scholarships on the line. Now getting back to the vetoed bill, it can be overridden with a three-fifths majority vote, so it's not dead at this point. And Dave, you have talked with a number of female athletes yourself who have, of course, told you that you know it's not fair to compete against men in sports. What about the fact that they may have to change in the same locker room? This is actually the bigger issue. You know, 
Former NCAA swimmer Riley Gaines was in tears talking about her experience with this on Capitol Hill. You know, it's hard to believe there are so many lawmakers that are for this, you know, given that it could affect someone close to them. There have been plenty of sexual misconduct incidents in bathrooms and locker rooms as a result of this. You know, when I interview these girls, there's always two questions I want to know. What percent of their female peers support males competing against them? And what percent are fine with changing in the same locker room with them? They all say the ma vast majority of girls are not for competing against men. None of them know anyone who's fine with changing in the same locker room with them. I think these politicians would do well to talk to these girls before deciding these things. And now shifting gears to talk about golf here. We know the year-end deadline for the proposed merger between PGA and Live is fast approaching. We're just a few days left in the year. Is there any word of extending that proposal or otherwise it's going to just fall apart? Well, according to a report in the Telegraph, the deadline is going to be extended. Now, no specific date was given, except that the hope is that it's going to be done before the Masters, which is in April. Now, I'll say this merger seemed to be you know, a life support just a few weeks ago when Liv poached another one of the PGA's players, John Rahm. Now, there are also reports that the PGA was entertaining U.S. investors as well, so it's gone both ways. The, the two seem to be back to being rivals instead of working together to create a deal. Now, it certainly seems like each side needs what the other has. The PGA has a very marketable brand, while Liv, or really the Saudi Arabia public investment fund that owns it, has you know, vastly, vast wealth, a lot of money. Now, it doesn't mean they can make a deal, so we'll have to see where this actually goes. Well, that's a for sure. For sure, then. Thank you so much, Dave, for your insights, as always. Thanks, Cyrus. And coming up with year 2023 almost over, we look back at some of the year's biggest stories in the final part of our yearly review series. And NTD business host Don Ma joins us to take a look at some of the biggest moments in the real estate sector and the job market this year after the break. With the year 2023 almost over, we take a look at some of the major events that happened near the end of this year. From the start of the Israel-Hamas war to the Colorado ruling trying to block former President Trump from the state's primary ballot. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has the final segment of our multi-part series. Hamas launches a terrorist attack on Israel October 7th, firing thousands of rockets from Gaza and breaching the border to murder civilians in towns. The terrorists killed around 260 people at an Israeli music festival that morning and kidnapped others back to Gaza to parade through the streets. Israel says Hamas terrorists killed roughly 1,200 people and took over 240 hostages. The Israeli government officially declared war on Hamas October 8th and began targeting terrorist commanders and infrastructure with airstrikes in response. Evacuations were issued along Israel's northern border with Lebanon as clashes with Iran-backed terrorist group Hezbollah increased. An explosion at a hospital in Gaza City triggers outrage mid-October after widespread reports of an Israeli airstrike. The U.S. and Israel after an investigation determined it was caused by a misfired rocket by the terrorist group Palestinian Islamic Jihad. I was deeply saddened and outraged by the uh, explosion at the hospital in Gaza yesterday. And based on what I've seen, it appears as though it was done by the other team, not, not you. Hamas releases the first hostages October 20th to American citizens. Aid trucks begin entering Gaza through the Rafah border crossing from Egypt. And the United Nations Secretary General begins accusing Israel of violating international humanitarian law in the Gaza Strip. 
At the end of October, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu announces ground operations in Gaza have begun, vowing to destroy the enemy above and below ground. Now, former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is ousted. Representative Mike Johnson wins the gavel as the fourth GOP nominee. Netanyahu November 7th states Israel's military had encircled Gaza City and is operating inside. MRI center. The military begins operating near Gaza's largest hospital, Al-Shifa, and finds weapons and terrorist infrastructure during a raid. A closet here, which is in the main part of the clinic, this is what they found. A live grenade, ammunition, fighting vest. November 24th, Qatar's foreign ministry announces Israel and Hamas have agreed to a four-day pause, subject to extension, to facilitate the release of hostages. The pause lasts seven days. Hamas releases around 100 hostages in exchange for roughly 210 Palestinian prisoners held on terrorism-related charges. The pause ends when Hamas violates terms of the deal by firing rockets at Israel and failing to release at least 10 hostages a day. At the APEC summit in San Francisco, President Biden doubles down on his view that Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping is effectively a dictator. And in Argentina, libertarian Javier Malay is elected president, and 40 construction workers are rescued from a collapsed tunnel in India's Himalayas after being trapped for 17 days. Israel resumes combat operations against Hamas targets in Gaza December 1st. The U.S. vetoes a proposed United Nations Security Council demand for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire, saying it would only benefit Hamas. Israeli troops accidentally shoot and kill three hostages, a tragedy that the IDF says violates its own rules of engagement, as they were holding a white flag. The incident is under investigation. The IDF also uncovers a massive Hamas tunnel big enough to drive cars through, a quarter mile from the Erez crossing at the Israeli border. Gaza's Hamas-run health ministry claims over 20,000 civilians have been killed. The numbers are unverified and do not differentiate combatants. Back in the U.S., the Colorado Supreme Court rules former President Trump ineligible to appear on the state's primary ballot. Four of seven justices deemed that Trump had participated in an insurrection and should be disqualified under a rarely used clause of the 14th Amendment in the U.S. Constitution. The Colorado court placed the ruling on hold until January 4th, pending Trump's appeal. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. 2023 was an eventful year for the housing and job markets. Earlier today, I spoke with NTD business host Don Ma for a recap of the big moments in real estate and labor sectors. Don, thanks so much for being here. Great to be with you, Iris. So as we are closing out 2023 here, tell us some of the biggest moments when it comes to the real estate sector. Well, Iris, uh, the biggest thing I think this year for the real estate market is that we actually did not see a commercial real estate crash. Uh, I mean, if you remember, uh, there were so many predictions about that this year. Uh, you had headlines like uh, the party's over in commercial real estate and many more in that vein. Um, U.S. office vacancy rates hovered around 28 percent in 2023. Uh, but then, you know, employees slowly started heading back to their desks and more companies, including BlackRock, Amazon, Salesforce, uh, they started ordering uh, workers to return to offices at least three times uh, a week. Uh, so that helped a little bit. Uh, but, you know, other than commercial real estate, the housing market uh, went through a lot as well. This was a year that the housing market essentially froze over and dominant uh, story for the year was mortgage rates and the U.S. housing market in 2023 kicked off uh, with rates at around the mid 6% range. Uh, then by mid-October, they topped 8%. And then the higher they went, right, the more potential buyers 
were priced out and then uh, at the same time potential sellers uh, would be deciding to stay put and hold on to their low, low mortgage rates. So a lot of activity, activity was uh, put on hold because of high uh, mortgage rates. And as well, home prices refused to come down this year. The median home price went up uh, 2% uh, year over year. This is according to Realtor.com. And this is, by the way, it's a new record here. Prices started at, at around $403,000 in January, steadily rose in the first half of the year, and they peaked at $445,000 in June. So just a brief overview of the market here. Well, definitely all eyes are on the Fed as it decides whether or not to raise rates again when it comes to, you know, of course, including mortgage rates. And now talking about the job market, when there's a big thing, a big touting point for the Biden administration touting about job numbers. And tell us what's significant about the job market in 2023. Yeah, you're right about that. But the U.S. job market, it seems like to me, didn't have as an eventful of a year when compared to the real estate market, uh, which I think it's good news, actually, because we didn't have a very turbulent job sector. Unemployment rates uh, remained low according to uh, compared to historical standards. Uh, you know, despite, as you mentioned earlier, the Federal Reserve's rate hiking campaign, uh, we saw, you know, solid job growth uh, month to month for the whole year. In fact, uh, the market started off pretty hot and then started to cool a little bit and started to normalize uh, later in the year. And I think one of the top points of discussion this year was actually how tight uh, the job market was. Uh, you know, at one point, there were around two job positions uh, open for every one single person looking for a job. So, you know, a lot of employers faced challenges in hiring this year, this year amid a, a labor shortage. Um, and in 2023, of course, we saw a lot of big companies doing layoffs, especially in the tech sector, right? This includes uh, major players like Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Twitter, Meta, Spotify, the list goes on. The tech industry has seen more than 240,000 jobs uh, lost in 2023. And let me just uh, mention one more point. Uh, another big point of discussion this year was actually remote work. Uh, if you remember, remote work spiked during the pandemic, and it seems like it hasn't gone away just yet, at least for this year. But many big company CEOs uh, actually uh, had some thoughts to say on this topic. For example, CEO uh, of JP Morgan uh, called himself a remote work skeptic. Mark Zuckerberg says that engineers get more done in the office. Uh, same with Elon Musk. And ironically, even Zoom's leadership wanted employees back uh, in person two, two days a week. Uh, so, but you know, looking at uh, 2023 state of remote work, it seems like it's uh, here to stay at least for this year. Well, definitely a lot of attention on the job market and on the economy overall as we enter 2024 presidential election year as voters care about the economy. Thanks so much, Don, as always, and looking forward to hearing more from you in the coming year. Thank you. And coming up, Xingyun Performing Arts sweeps audiences away to magical worlds on its new 2024 tour. We'll give you a special look into the lives of two principal dancers with the group. Stay tuned for behind-the-scenes insights after the break. Welcome back. Now we'll bring you an exclusive interview with two principal dancers from Xingyun Performing Arts. The host of NTD Good Morning, Evelyn Lee, sits down with siblings Marilyn Yang and William Lee to learn what it takes to become a Xingyun dancer. 
And we have all seen the posters and videos, Shenyun Performing Arts is coming to a city near you. A troupe that is known to be the best worldwide for traditional Chinese dance. But what we see on stage is a result of years of hard work. So what's it really like behind the curtain? And what is life like as a Shenyun dancer? We have the pleasure to welcome Marilyn Yang and William Lee with us today to talk about this. And what many don't actually know is that they're siblings. So welcome to both of you. So what is it like? What was your childhood essentially like? Because that involves a lot of hard training and work and discipline at such a young age. Yeah, I mean, once you start dancing, it's like it you flip your world upside down. You're training for hours every single day. So you have a lot of basic dance training, but on top of that, also rehearsals. So every year we're putting on a completely new performance. That means we're on the road for six months and also at the base in New York for six months. And it's just a lot of training, very physical, but also a lot of mental. It's very mental because, um, I mean, learning movements is tiring, it's hard, and you have to use your brain just as much as your body. How did you even get, or how did either of you get to start to be dancers in Shenyun? How did this come about? And well, it started with me first, and my mom is a singer, and my dad actually directs movies and produces movies. So, wow. pretty involved in the arts, and my mom wanted me to try dancing when I was a young age. It, it seems like something that's a little bit odd for a young boy to try, but once I got into it, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the history that comes along with learning traditional classical Chinese dance, and also just, it's actually very physical. So, that was actually right. quite fun. That's nice, so that it was fun on top of all this hard work. And so, and then you decided to, yeah. let's say, follow in his footsteps, right? He, Even though he told, did he tell you about how, how much hard work that would be? Uh, he likes to say that I followed in his footsteps. Oh, okay. But for me, I think it's more like, I mean, when I watched the show, naturally, I was really awestruck with the female dancers. So it was definitely more of like that I was going for, like I wanted to pursue that, that brilliant on stage like just it's just a really nice experience even when I was a small kid it was like one of my deepest memories I just kind of went blind into it and of course it was like it was like a shocking like change in lifestyle and everything but it's definitely I think he supported me coming and joining Shenyun because of he knew how much it benefited his life and it really made I think a change for all of us so when you went into it, how did you feel like, you know, was there like a, when you found out what it actually involves, how was that like for you? I think at first it was more like, oh, the show's so pretty and you just want to be on stage and just perform. But I think there's a lot that came into it that it's like, it changed me as a character and definitely a lot of, to be able to train and try to become professional at anything, and dance especially, you have to have a lot of self-discipline, and it's a lot more than just the physical aspect, like he said. Is mm -hmm. I think it's a really humbling experience. Humbling experience. So how was it for you? Was it difficult? I imagine as a 13-year-old as boy, you also need to build up that discipline. Was that something difficult to do? Uh, definitely very difficult, but it's something you almost you need to find what drives you to be a dancer. Like, just going into it because you like it, that's how you start. But as you dance, you know, or doing anything in life, you have to find, when things get tough, what really drives you. And for me, even though I was young at the time, the mission of Shin Yun is actually something that is really amazing. To revive a culture that was almost destroyed. 
to revive 5,000 years of traditional Chinese culture. And I think when you think about it, even when things get hard, that is actually something that's very inspirational for a young person. And mm. it really drove me through some of the tougher times. That is incredible that you understand this. How long have you been dancing now and what keeps you going now? Um, I started dancing when I was 10 years old. I would say that um, there's so many aspects to it. I definitely agree that it's, it's something so, it's hard to wrap your mind around at first at such a young age that I'm going to be reviving traditional Chinese culture. Um, but as I got more into it, I realized that it's just something really, it's something that's so much bigger than myself. And it was a really special feeling to know that I'm part of something bigger and I'm part of a mm. team. What would you say is the hardest part and what's your favorite part of being a dancer? Who wants to go first? <laughs> I would say the hardest part is just um, trying to become like really skilled at something. It requires a lot of practice and there's always going to be times when you don't want to, you don't want to get up in the morning to continue like the same schedule. It's just a lot of it requires a lot of self-discipline and I think that's something very challenging because we all have always have those lazy days and sure. <laughs> yeah, and it's you want to you want to always be better than the you you were yesterday so mm -hmm. if you want to keep on keep on climbing up that hill really it's sometimes you just feel like you stay in the same place for a while and you don't really see much improvement so it takes a lot of I think just the mental um, push to like strive to become better and know that there is really there's no limit to the the like no limit to how good you can get mm. so it's always you got to keep pushing yourself and i think that's something that's really challenging mm. be better than the you yesterday that's yes. awesome what about you something really hard is just the training can get very repetitive it's almost like you can think about like going to the gym and working out right you have to do the same a motion every time the same amount of reps and you had to keep building on top of that and mm -hmm. then maybe you recover a day and the next day you want to go back you're still kind of sore but you still have to go if you want to improve so dancing is the same thing it, the training is quite repetitive but what we present on stage every year is still different so there's a there's a both sides of that coin where it's repetitive training but new performance for us every year so what is your favorite part would that be your favorite part to perform on stage you know what's really good about being at Shenyun is that we perform all over the world and mm. I started young, but I've traveled to so many different countries, like over 100 different cities in the world performing and uh, presenting classical Chinese dance on stage. It's something that I'm quite proud of, but it's just a really good experience for a young person. That sounds awesome. You had mentioned before, which is the mission of Shenyun. So tell me a little bit more about what the mission exactly is and why it resonated with you. So the mission of Shenyun uh, is to revive authentic traditional Chinese culture. And why that's important is because the CCP that's in China today, the communist regime tried to systematically destroy traditional Chinese culture when they took over China. So there was a cultural revolution and they actually mm -hmm. systematically tried to destroy Chinese culture. They said that um, everything that is old is bad, like faith and tradition, all of these things that Chinese people have resonated with and is really the backbone of Chinese civilization for over 5,000 years they try to get rid of that because when you are spiritual, you, you believe in, you know, um, you have your own beliefs. But when the CCP came in, right, you don't, they don't want people to have their own faith mm. and be individuals. They want you to just follow what the CCP says. So 
really, they actually tried to, you know, they had all these different movements trying to destroy culture, and all of a sudden, Shen Yun comes in, and we're trying to revive this tradition, revive this culture, which is the backbone of Chinese civilization, and, you know, they're actually quite scared of that. So right. they've interfered with a lot of our performances all over the world. They interfered? How so? So, for example, uh, when we try to perform in some theaters, uh, for example, in South Korea, in Dominican Republic, and even in America, they would send letters to the theaters. theater managers, mm -hmm. and they would try to convince them not to host Shen Yun. Yeah, I think that's good to bring up, because that's a really dark part of history that I think people should be aware of. So why is it so valuable, this traditional Chinese culture that you want to share it with the world? I think that traditional Chinese culture, it's so rich with just so many virtues and just so many characteristics on how to be a better person. And that's really embedded in the ancient Chinese civilization. Um, really, the culture was is divinely inspired and everything was very spiritually tied. So the history of ancient China was really all about how to become a better person, how to become um, just be make society better, mm -hmm. I think. And if we were to bring back those values today, that would definitely benefit just our society nowadays too. For us, when we do a lot of these ancient Chinese stories, these characters, we're not necessarily just acting. It's not just an act that we put up, but we really live in these virtues and we're always trying to cultivate these virtues in ourselves so that we embody them truly. So when we portray them on stage, it's really a realistic um, portrayal and it's not something that we're just trying to put on and put on an act for. It's something I think because it's so true to ourselves, the audience mm -hmm. can really feel the how rich and just how accurate. It feels more genuine yeah. if you resonate with that character's emotions or what he's portraying. So for example, uh, Mi Furin, she had to sacrifice for her baby. If, you don't, if you're quite a selfish person, you might not resonate with those feelings or those virtues. And then what you portray on stage is not really going to connect with your character and it might not connect with your audience. So that's why if you want to portray a character well, you really need to resonate with the values that they represent. Right. So what exactly does that mean with, how does that manifest in your life? When you say it represents, you live by those values, what kind of changes do you make to your life to achieve that? I think it's a lot of the very small things. For example, Monkey King, he went from arrogant to humble. And that means that in your daily life, um, your actions and what you do should um, reflect humility. Right? I can't go around being like, I'm the best. I can do all this. No, but you should know that there's always someone better than you. And actually, in Chinese, like, Chinese culture is believed to be divinely inspired. And for me, a lot of the skills and what I've learned in dance, I think, is also given to me from the divine. It's not just my own hard work, but that's like, um, something that we believe, Chinese people believe, is from the gods. And even my, my skills and abilities, I think, are also given to me from the divine as well. There, there is a saying, <laughs> So before learning a skill, first learn to be a good person. And oh. that, I think, for a lot of dancers, I think it's very important. Because you're, if you're a good person, you can better represent um, these values on stage. It's like, um, for example, if I'm telling you, uh, I like watermelon. Something very <laughs> simple, right? We can all, but if I really hated watermelon, I dislike it, but I told you I like watermelon you would feel something's a little bit off. But if I really like watermelon, and I tell, I'm telling you, I love watermelon. You gotta believe me, you gotta try this watermelon. 
you feel different. So the difference is one is true and one is false. But what I'm saying is the same thing. Yeah, you know what? That makes a lot of sense to me because when you say something that you don't stand by, it definitely will feel different. Because <laughs> it sounds like this, all of this is so much more for you guys than just entertaining the audience. So if the audience would watch the show and would leave the show with just one takeaway, what do you hope it would be? I think we both agree that it would be hope, actually. We want the audience to really have a sense of hope after watching our show, and I think that's what, why it's so meaningful to us to put on our performances. I think one way we would put it is like, there's always, after a storm, there's always a rainbow, and so we want to have our audience really get to experience that and have hope leaving our theater. And I think it really helps that in the sense that we're not just an entertainment show. We're not really just, we don't, we don't put it on so you can have just laughs or like mm -hmm. just have like a momentary piece of like escape. It's more like we really want you to be able to take away these values because I think in Xinyun we have like 20 pieces in our whole program and it's each story I think really has deep moral or something you can learn from. And that really is why I think traditional Chinese culture is so important. It's because mm -hmm. each story, it really has something that's meaningful. It has a moral to the story. The story of Shen Yun is actually a story of hope. Chinese culture was almost destroyed because of the CCP, mm -hmm. but Shen Yun was founded in America where we were able to revive this traditional Chinese culture and share it with the world. And Hope is something that is not a, ver or a value that is only you know, good for the Chinese people. Hope should be something that everyone all over the world, you know, can mm -hmm. it's something that everyone can resonate with, the story. And it might just inspire you a little bit in your daily life as well. And along with it is the tradition and virtues of Chinese history and Chinese culture. It's something that's universal. So a really important parts of Chinese culture, such as faith, compassion, and humility, these are all things that we can have a little bit more of in our daily lives. Mm -hmm. I just mentioned uh, in the beginning of this interview, you guys are almost um, out the, off to the airport. You're, you guys are starting your tour. So where can people catch you guys on stage this season? I'm back in Europe. <laughs> My company's in <laughs> Europe. Yeah. So we have eight companies and we're traveling all over the world. But check out shenyun.com for specific cities. Mm -hmm. So are you going to be in Mexico again? I will be in Mexico this year. But okay, lovely. Always, always. <laughs> if you want to find William Lee, just find him in Mexico. Okay. <laughs> Maybe I'll come and wave, from, wave to you from offstage. All right. It was a pleasure talking to you today. Um, it was very insightful. I'm very inspired, I have to say. And that's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Iris Tao. Tiffany will be back on Monday. Until then, wishing everyone a happy new year. Good night.